Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, good morning. My name is John, and I've got the enviable task of closing our Christology series today with the topic of the return of Jesus. Now, for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with this topic, I wanted to make a point about the Bible that I think will help focus us this morning. Sarah and I, my wife and I, were given a book for our son Oliver called Oliver is the greatest. Now, we don't like the book because I want my son to grow up with an ounce of humility. But the point is this. It's one of those books where the outline has been written and a clever marketing team have realized that it will be much more relevant if the book was about your child and not just any old child. So out there in the world, there is uh, a Rowan is the greatest. There's a Josiah is the greatest. There's a Louise is the greatest. It's clever. The, the reader is in some way written in to the narrative so that it increases the relevancy. Really smart. Um, there are moments, aren't there, when we're reading the Bible where it can feel distant because we're reading someone else's story. It's a story about a group of people hundreds and thousands of years ago, and it feels distant. But interestingly, today, we're looking at a point in the story, a unique event in which our names, as it were, in a sense, have been written into the narrative. And I don't mean this in an abstract way or a superficial way, or like philosophically. I mean this uh, quite literally. We have been written in to this part of the story. We are present at this part of the story. The return of Jesus is the point at which the story of Christ converges with all of our stories. The point at which we are placed you and me, not as external observers of somebody else's story, but as internal participants of our own. The event of the prophesied, expected, hoped-for return of Jesus is the climactic end, not of any story, not of a story, but of the story and therefore ours. One of the founding creeds of the church The Nicene Creed summarizes the event like this. He, Jesus, shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. 
Now, the living and the dead there is supposed to reference all of us. And so, in a sense, it's saying that all of us have this meeting with Jesus. And if we were to ask the question, what is on the agenda for this meeting? It's judgment. It's judgment. Now, I just want to recognize that judgment is not an attractive sermon topic. And maybe you've just come back from your lakeside trip to Kelowna and you're thinking, I really want to, you know, watch one of the sermons because I haven't watched one in a couple of weeks. And you come back and you hear judgment and you think, oh, maybe I won't listen to this. But I want to make the claim today that Jesus coming back as judge is good news. And in fact, if we understand judgment biblically, It will lead us to worship the judge. It's going to lead us to long for the day that the judge comes. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at judgment under three related biblical terms. We're going to look at first, justice, second, righteousness, and third, mercy. So justice, righteousness, and mercy. Let's begin with justice. Um, I I think it would be fair to say that our culture has an interesting relationship with the words justice and judgment. And so on on the one hand, in our culture, the, the very best thing that we can do is to fight for justice, is to fight against injustice. But on the other hand, the the very worst thing that we can do in our culture is to be judgmental. If you want to see this most clearly, just look at the two biggest critiques of the Christian God. On the one hand, he's unjust. He allows evil to continue. But on the other hand, he's judgmental. How dare he critique how I live my life? But there's a tension, isn't there? In, in our understanding of judgment and justice, because we know when we think about it, we know that they're inseparable. We know that they are they're two sides of the same coin. Judgment is necessary for justice. And justice requires judgment. And so I wanted to say off the bat here this morning that if we're to understand Jesus coming back as judge... We cannot talk about it outside of the concept of justice. And if we we dismiss one, if we dismiss judgment, then we dismiss the other. So let's talk about justice. Justice, uh, conversely to judgment, is is an extremely culturally relevant and attractive topic, isn't it? Um, But if we spend any time reading any history... We know that we don't have to read very far. We don't have to look back very far to realize that injustice isn't new. In fact, we don't even have to live very long, do we, to realize that injustice is pervasive. You could argue that of all of the doctrines of Christianity, the most widely accepted outside of Christianity is that of the doctrine of evil. I think you'd be, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find someone who who doesn't believe that evil exists. And let me tell you, if you find someone that doesn't believe evil exists, I'd be wary of them. Um, Sarah and I spent some time uh, a few years back 
in Cambodia, and we visited a school. And this school had been turned into a museum. You, if you've been to Cambodia, you, you've probably been there. Um, but if you don't know anything about Cambodia's history, um, about 50 years ago, a communist government took over and carried out an unimaginable genocide. The school that we visited was turned into a museum because that government had historically turned that school into a concentration camp where the classrooms were turned into cells and more than 20,000 people were tortured and killed there. Unimaginable. The museum was, was set up as a way of trying to um, remember the atrocity. Now, if you can believe this, as we were leaving, there was a guy outside that um, asked if we wanted to go and shoot a cow with a bazooka. And I thought to myself, what kind of world do we live in? What kind of world would that, is, is that appropriate in any setting, let alone leaving this museum? Whether it's genocide or domestic abuse or sex trafficking or, or child pornography, we have the capacity, don't we, to recognize evil. And there seems to be, rightly, something inside of us that rages against it. I want to say today that if, if you're feeling this, whether it's something going on in your own life or something that you've witnessed, I want to say today that a longing for justice, an anger towards evil, is an echo of the heartbeat of our God. It's an echo of the heartbeat of our God. Our God is a just God who rages against evil and injustice. In the Bible, there is a, a common refrain that captures, I think, the, the relationship between a people among evil and their appeal to a God who they know is just. And it's how long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. How long will you let evil continue? How long will you let the wicked prosper? How long, God? The promise of a returning Jesus holds with it the hope that there will come a day when we will no longer need to cry how long because on that day, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What final judgment means ultimately is final and absolute justice. The world will be made as it ought to be. No longer stained by sin, no longer corrupted by evil, but made new and made whole and made holy. So first, 
If we're to understand the return of Jesus as judge, we need to know that our longing for justice, that echo in us of the heartbeat of God, will on that day be met by God himself, the God of justice, who will bring an end to all evil, all sin, and all suffering. Point one, justice. Point two, righteousness. Righteousness. For the keen biblical scholars among you, the ones who know their biblical languages, you may have noticed that I'm doubling up here. Because interestingly, the word for justice in both the Hebrew and the Greek, I'm told, is the exact same word for righteousness. Justice and righteousness, they're the same word. So why am I making the same point again? Why is point one and point two the same point? Well, because it seems to me that in our culture, more and more justice looks like things that we stand behind as a way of being on the right side of the fence and less and less associated with the righteousness of a good and holy God. Here's what I mean by that. We are told, aren't we, that we have to be on the right side of history. We're told that we must be allies with the the correct group or we won't be on the right side of history. We're, We're told that we have to post the right posts and support the right causes and align ourselves with the right people or we'll be in the firing line. Now, it's worth saying here, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, as the church, get behind issues of justice. As I said, God is a just God, and we are called, as his followers, to do justice. Not just say justice, not just talk about it, not just think about it, but to do justice. But what happens when we, when we separate the, the idea of justice with that of righteousness, with the, the concept of justice, with that of the righteousness of God, is it can become a weapon in our hands. We can use it in a way that is not about aligning ourselves with the heart of God, but it's about justifying ourselves and about judging others, about vindicating ourselves and about condemning others. And so when we read our Bibles and we read Proverbs 21:15, where it says, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. What do we hear? We always hear joy for us and terror for them. Always joy for us and terror for them. Why? Because we're on the right side of the fence. We're on the right side of history. We're on the right side of the picket line. We're on the right side of the firing line. We've orchestrated a world in which accountability, culpability, and dare I say it, guilt, is always for them, for that group, for those people, and never for us, never for me. And my fear, Christ City, is that a justice like this, a justice that has been abstracted from the person of a righteous God, gives us the illusion that we are doing justice when all we're really doing is avoiding judgment for ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, by judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. 
what we have, what we have in the return of Jesus is a justice that is not abstracted from the person of Christ. We have a justice that is tied to the person of Christ, a justice that is grounded in Christ and is executed by Christ. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one, who's, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The return of Christ reminds us that it is Jesus on the throne. It reminds us that that we are not the judge. In fact, we're not even the jury. We're the judged. The return of Christ reminds us that we are the judged. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says, For we must all, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of you, each one, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Brothers and sisters, one day, one day, you, me, we, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will appear before a holy God And we will have to give an account for our lives and not an appraisal of someone else's. We will have to give an account for our lives and not a critique of someone else's. We will have to give an account for our lives and not some sort of analysis of how other people have lived. We will all, Paul says, appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we deserve. And so... The question remains, what do we deserve? What do we deserve? The Apostle Paul (laughs) makes an an insightful point in Romans 2 uh, about what we deserve. Having just talked about all of the sins that they do, that those people do, and everyone who's listening is nodding along, yep, yep, they do that, and that person does that, and yeah, 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 aren't they terrible? Um, he, He turns... He turns and faces his audience and says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, Those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What Paul is saying is that we we don't even live up to the, the standard by which we judge other people, let alone that of a holy God. The irony of ironies is that in making ourselves the judge, we condemn ourselves. Um, If you've been following the news at all, uh, there is currently a public outcry in the U.S. for police officers to wear body cameras on them in order that they would be held accountable for their actions at all times. Now, the point of me mentioning this is is in no way to, to, to talk about whether this is a good idea or a bad idea, but to ask the question, what would it reveal if we were to all wear one? If uh, every action, 
24-7 for the whole of our lives was, was recorded and documented and then put on display for the world to critique. Everything that you've said as someone leaves the room. Everything that you've done when you're alone in front of a laptop. Every work trip, every night out, every night in. Every time the parents go away, every time the kids go away, every time the wife goes away. What would it reveal? How comfortable would you be for that to be broadcast, put on display to be critiqued? I'll tell you for me, I'd be ashamed. I'd be embarrassed. You definitely think less of me. Um, I think you'd pretty quickly find out that I can be hypocritical. I can expect something of people and I don't live up to it myself. The return of Christ as judge will mean justice. An end to all sin and suffering, grief and pain. But the question, the question we have to ask ourselves is, before a holy God, how will we, even when we condemn ourselves by our own judgment, stand before the judgment seat of Christ? How will we stand? Number one, justice. Number two, righteousness. Number three, mercy. I think, um, I think when we read the end seriously, when we read Revelation seriously, when we read about judgment seriously, um, it, can be, it can be pretty terrifying. And I think, I think it is. I think it is terrifying. Here's uh, Revelation 19 again. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John, the, the author of Revelation, has a vision of the one who is coming back to bring justice. He has a vision of the one who is coming to judge. He has a vision of, as he says, the one who is coming to wage war. And as I said, it's terrifying. It is terrifying until. Until we remember who it is that is coming. I don't know about you, but when I was reading this, I couldn't help but see the difference the difference between the Jesus that we know and love in the Gospels 
The Jesus that we have put our faith and trust in and the Jesus of Revelation, the Jesus that John sees. John sees a man riding from heaven on a war horse and the Jesus that we know, we remember, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. John sees an angel army amassed behind a conquering king. And we remember, don't we? That, that Jesus held back presumably the same angel army in the Garden of Gethsemane on his way to the cross. John sees the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with a crown on his head and a rod of iron in his hand. And the Jesus we know was mocked as the King of the Jews. He was stripped. He was beaten. And he was placed on a cross with a, a mocking crown of thorns on his head. Why am I saying all of this? Well, because this difference, this difference between the, the Jesus that we know and love, the Jesus that we see in the Gospels, and the Jesus of Revelation, the Jesus that John sees is not a difference in person, it's a difference in purpose. You see, Jesus, the, the one who is, is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, is the very same Jesus who came the first time in humility to save sinners. And we will never understand, we will never understand the, the final judgment of God the final judgment seat of Christ, unless we understand that the, the judge of all creation, the judge of all creation came first to be judged in our place. Unless we know that before this meeting, before this meeting of all of our stories and that of Christ with an agenda of judgment, God wrote himself into our story in becoming a man, in living the life that we couldn't live, in dying the death that we should have died, and raising to new life in order that we might have that new life, in order that we might have our sins forgiven. And so, as we conclude a sermon series on Christology, it is only right that we go back to the cross where it was said, it is finished. We go back to Calvary where, where God is both just and the justifier. Where for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so we sing, don't we? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And it's not because we have been weighed and measured and we've measured up. It's not because we have presented our lives and we have been good enough. It's because a great high priest whose name is love ever lives and pleads for me. And so for everyone watching, the end of your story, the end of all of our stories is standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And there has only ever been two options. 
The first is we stand as a person condemned even by our own standards of judgment, let alone those of a holy God. Or, having repented of our sins and put our trust in the finished work of Christ, we stand before a holy God clothed in his righteousness. As I end, I wanted to give you one final piece of good news if you're watching this and you haven't yet put your trust in Christ. I wanted to say that mercy comes to you today by way of patience. The Apostle Peter, in uh, his, his second letter, he's responding to people who are impatient for the coming judgment, who are impatient for Christ's return, who are questioning when it's going to happen. And he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, in the Bible, there is a, there is a counterbalance refrain to how long. There is another refrain that is, is repeated over and over and again. And it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A day is coming where justice will be served. There is a day coming where the king will come and judge the living and the dead. But today, this day, God has shown you kindness in his patience in order that you would be led to repentance, in order that you would put your trust in the one who would clothe you in his righteousness, in order that you, standing before the throne of God, would have a strong and perfect plea. And if that's you, I, I just want to offer up um, a conversation you can email me at john, J-O-N, at christcitychurch.ca. I would love to talk to you about that and what that could mean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for the day that you will come. We long for the day of Christ's return when you will, all, you will make all things new. And while we cry today, how long, we also thank you. We thank you for your kindness, for your patience, for your mercy, in order that none should perish, but all should repent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are part of a house church today, you can go ahead and grab the elements, the bread, the juice, and the wine. And as you take and you eat and you drink, this is a chance for you to remember that the just judge of creation came down in Christ and was judged in your place.